Hello, I'm Liberty Erickson, and this is the Maywa Podcast. The lecture, Between Science and Art, was recorded live Tuesday, September 11th, 2018, as part of the Maywa School of Textiles lecture series held in Vancouver, Canada. This episode features excerpts from the lecture and was first posted in 2019. The lecture is introduced by Tim McLaughlin and features Catherine Ellis, who joins us from North Carolina, and Joy Boutrop, who joins us from Denmark. The collaboration of these two minds brings a beautiful balance between art and science. Joy lends her focus in a scientific approach, and Catherine applies that to her weaving and dyeing. Together, they are most notably known for their exploration with woven shibori and the application of different dye techniques. Join us as we engage with two very different minds that bring it all together in a truly inspiring way. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to tonight's lecture. We all love textiles. We love making them. We love finding them and we love using them. It would not be an exaggeration to say that we feel close to our favorites. We spend a great deal of time with them. When we can't find a favorite, we get anxious. They're like children to us. They need us to look after them, and we need them to feel that warm, intimate sense of satisfaction. Let us agree for a moment that they are almost like children that they are alive. Let us say that when we make them, we give them birth, and then when we use them, they live out their life. But what happens after that? Following my analogy, what happens to some fortunate ones is they get an afterlife. The afterlife is to reside in a heaven, a museum, a textile collection, or an institution which can restore and conserve them. As someone who studies textiles, I have tremendous respect for conservation departments. They're often the source of detailed research into dyes, fibers, techniques, and history. And because they are often associated with public institutions, the result of that research often flows quite freely down to people like myself, who have a deep interest in all these things. Tonight, we have two gifted individuals from each side of the life of textiles. We have Joy Boothrop, who has a background in textile engineering, has spent considerable time in conservation departments, and who is a specialist in textile chemistry. Her services have benefited textile and fashion designers in two design schools in Denmark, and she has taught at the School of Conservation in Copenhagen. She's a consultant, lecturer, tech teacher, and as we will see tonight, a collaborator. I could go on about each of these people. I'm just going to give you a little snippet of their life because they both have extensive resumes. Catherine Ellis is a weaver, dyer, author, and artist who has spent most of her life giving birth to textiles and encouraging others to do the same. She's a little bit like a textile midwife. Catherine has taught at the Penland School at Haywood Community College. She's exhibited throughout America and is preparing an exhibition for Australia. She is actively involved in the Surface Design Association, the World Shibori Network. She is the founding member of the Southeastern Fiber Educators Association. Catherine is the author of Woven Shibori, 
first published in 2005 and revised in 2016. It's an excellent book, and I recommend that you look it up. If you don't already have it, you probably want to get it. Together, they have authored a book which is due out shortly, titled The Art and Science of Natural Dyes, Principles, Experiments, and Results. Everyone, please join me in welcoming Catherine and Joanne. Thank you, Tim. That was a beautiful introduction, and I really appreciate it. And thank you, Charlotte, and all of Mewa for having us, us here together. It's, it's, it's always a treat for us to be together. together. <laughs> because, because as you maybe uh, have know already, I live in Denmark, and Catherine lives in North Carolina. So we don't see each other that often. So it's email mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and pictures and and, and and conversations that happen constantly. And I will say that I would not be the textile person that I am today without my partnership with Joy. And we're here to tell you some of that story, how it came about, a little bit about us, and also what's possible when two people come together that have very, very different skills but the same enthusiasm. Yes. Right? Okay. Yes. So it's um, we've taught together, we've worked together, <laughs> we laugh together. It's fun. It's fun, and it's been. It's been a journey that hasn't been all work. Um, um, we just, you know, I love the word joy, and joy has, has been a part of, of this whole relationship. And what happens is uh, sometimes I've just have been talking to, to Kathleen during, <laughs> during the lunchtime and told her you can also do this and that. And next year when I saw her, she showed me a stack of samples <laughs> doing what I just so just casually had told her and uh, I was impressed I must say because I never do anything I just talk <laughs> <laughs> joy joy's the brains here you know she's 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 got the concept she's got the ideas she's got the explanations and I do the work so but but uh, <laughs> but but we want to we want to give you a little background on on who we are and what we did. So Joy, you want you want to talk about this a little? Yes, uh, I've been teaching in the two design schools in Denmark for many years, and also overseas, and about textiles as such, uh, textile techniques, textile constructions, influence between construction and fiber, finishing, and dyeing because that's my engineering background, mm -hmm. uh, especially finishing is my field. Mm -hmm. uh, so when I came back to Denmark from Germany where I studied, I actually wanted to work in conservation, but there was no space for me in, the, in Denmark. And my family is in Denmark, so uh, I got a job in the design school. And my first visit there, I was engaged immediately before leaving the school. I just came to see what they were doing in textiles because I have been out out textiles for a month and I felt sort of neglected. <laughs> so mm -hmm. I 
met somebody from the design school and I went to see it. And I met some artists there and I was impressed what, were the, what they could do with very primitive, from my point of view, very primitive uh, tools. And they engaged me to teach textiles and textile techniques. And one of my colleagues and I made this book mm -hmm. in 1980 uh, in Danish and it's used in old Scandinavia for many, many years and still in use actually, <laughs> although it's been out of print for the last 20 years. Um, but 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 this this book I you know, I didn't even know about this book until very recently and last year Joy and I were teaching together at the ETN conference in Sweden, and half the people in that class came with this book because they've been using it since the 1980s and it's been the bible of printing you know printing on textiles and it had information that we didn't have here in this you know in North America back in the 1980s, it was all very technical but it speaks to the very, very firm foundation that all of these printers had back then. Yeah. And the company who printed it didn't want to reprint it because it was too technical. The other two slides here, next two slides here, showing what I'm working with at the moment, it's uh, braids. Uh, it's a childhood interest that I'm taking up now, I'm retired. And I'm studying European braids at the moment and working on a scientific work on analysis of braids in Europe, which has never been studied. So it's just loop braiding, which mm -hmm. is my, mm -hmm. my hobby and my big interest. And I hope to go back to when we are finished with this book <laughs> about <laughs> dyes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Joy will teach anybody loop braiding anywhere. I, I mean, she's like the Pied Piper when it comes to, to, to loop braiding. Yes. <laughs> and, no, okay, all right. And, and my background, I'm a weaver. You know, I've woven for many, many years and dyeing has always been an integral part in the weaving that I've done. It began a long time ago with very simple ecot weaving um, and then it morphed into this process of woven shibori. Um, it, and it's something I was able to put together only because I was a dyer and I was a weaver, and I began to see the potential of weaving supplemental threads into a textile that could be used to gather that cloth to make a resist for dyeing. Um, it's similar technically to Japanese mokume or stitch shibori, but what I have found is that as a weaver, I have a lot more control, it's much more efficient, and it also makes possible other things because I'm constructing the textiles from the threads themselves. So other things become possible. You know, so, um, so initially for the first few years when I worked on this, I did nothing but die with indigo. Um, I was trying to learn a vocabulary of pattern and um, in eventually, a color started to enter my textiles in the form of discharge. I was working with commercially dyed or uh, fabrics dyed with fiber reactive dyes and then I started doing 
um, uh, discharge with thiourea dioxide. You know, this was back in my chemical chemical dye days. You, you know, like many many of us as dyers, we first learned natural dyeing back in the 70s and got just got tired of all of those boring colors and we really didn't know or understand very much. So, you know, uh, for a long time I worked with synthetic dyes. So that's what I was doing at that time. And I was at about this point with the just beginning discharge when I first met Joy. But I'm gonna let you tell, uh, you tell them a yes. little bit about how you came to North America to work with dyers and printers here. What happened was that the, the publishing of the book in 1980 uh, started a series of uh, Scandinavian uh, conferences, one in Copenhagen first that I initiated in 1986, showing uh, the new techniques that we had de developed, uh, my colleague and I in Copenhagen, and then we invited all the no, uh, Scandinavian schools to join us in Copenhagen. And after that, it went to Stockholm and then to Helsinki and then to Oslo and so on. And uh, at the conference in Helsinki, they invited some Americans. And one of them was Jason Pollen. And Jason said, oh, you have to come to, to, to America and teach at the SDA. And then five years, that was in, in 1989. And then five years later, he was teaching in Sweden. And my colleague called me from Gothenburg and said, he's using teaspoons, <laughs> <laughs> you know? <laughs> and we were also always using grams and scales and, and so on. <laughs> so they found it a little, uh, uh, you know, ridiculous. <laughs> and. Uh, but she called me to ask for some advices about some techniques that he was showing. And uh, then I talked to him and said, you can come to Copenhagen for one day and work with me in the school. So we served at printing table and we did some chemical research, uh, chemical resist, and some discharge there in the school. And then he invited me to come to the United States. And we made a master class mm -hmm. in Kansas City Art Institute, unpaid, just for fun. <laughs> and he invited all his colleagues and artists and uh, several people around him, like Piper Shepard, um, Susan Lodimager, and Anne Lindberg, uh -huh. some very notorious uh, good artists in, in the United States, and also Michelle Hester, who was there, uh, who is the uh, head of Silk Silk Paint, Paint. Silk, Silk, Silk Paint Corporation. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. And she learned uh, technique by me and developed burnout paste <laughs> uh, and asked me if it was allowed. And I said, it's, it's common knowledge. It's not, uh, this is not my private <laughs> recipe or anything. It's just uh, something you can learn from technical books. So. She, I said, you are welcome to publish it or commercialize it as you like. But that says a lot about your, your willingness to share. I mean, that says, that says volumes. Joy never kept anything for herself. She puts it out there for everyone to take. It. Well, 
<laughs> I have no use for it. I mean, <laughs> except mm. telling it. <laughs> and then and then you came to Penland for the first time. Yes, mm -hmm. and I taught with, with Jason Penland uh, at Penland in 1994, <laughs> and later at the conference in SDA conference in Portland in 95. <laughs> and in 96, I met uh, Catherine Ellis at Penland. And when Joy came to Penland and she came here, she was teaching things that we had never heard before, not as printers, not as textile artists, not as weavers, certainly. Things like light crimping, um, burnout, devaray. I mean, those weren't parts, that wasn't a part of a vocabulary back then. Um, working with felting resists, working with transfer printing of polyester, working with different dextrins to resist and to carry dye. This was all brand new, and Joy is the person who brought this here. This is, this is what, you know, I took these photos off of Maywa's website, you know? This is, this is fiber etch, you know, that is made from sodium bisulfite and P4 thickener. But this was the research that Michelle did after spending time with Joy, you know? So it's just the value of having someone who understands the chemistry of all of this is pretty amazing. At the conference in, um, Portland, I talked to Janet Taylor, who has been downstairs when I was teaching upstairs with Jason Pollen at Penland, and we said next time we'll do a, a shared class between weaving and printing, because finishing is actually one of my topics. And I said, weavers don't know anything about <laughs> finishing. <laughs> And we have to do something about that. And you can apply some of the techniques that I've been teaching the printers in textiles, uh, woven textiles too. And Catherine was part of that class at, uh, with Janet Taylor. And it was, li was life-changing. It was, it was truly life-changing because Joy understood textile construction. She just didn't you know, know all this printing stuff. She understood textile construction down to the spin of the fiber and how it pulled together. And it, it was so important for me to have this information to help me take my work to the next step or steps, places I never would have realized otherwise. Things like decatizing, I'd never heard of decatizing. It's, it's an incredibly important way to finish wool. Working with wool burnout and, um, control, and, con and control felting, all of this. And, and as a weaver, I was able to make use of some of these surface design techniques even more so because I got to make the textile itself. And, and to watch weavers look at things that Joy did and then take it to the next step and the next step and the next step. It was quite, it's been quite remarkable. Yeah. I just mm -hmm. wanted to say this. Uh, Alison De Dennis made this sample after leaving the class at Penland. Uh, when we show that when we are felted, you can cut. <laughs> because then it's cut fast, and you can cut the fibers, you cut the warp, you can cut the weft, <laughs> and you can do very different things with your weave. So she did this after the very simple samples that I had to show. 
what we want to show you right now are some of the processes that made a huge difference to me and my work. You know, as I said, I was doing Woven Shibori when I first met Joy. I had only dyed with indigo and then had started doing some work with discharge. Um, um, chemical discharge, thiorrhea dioxide, and, and Joy began teaching me about vat dye discharge. And you, you just want to talk about that? Yeah, this is mm -hmm. a woven sample from the school, and it's just a clear discharge. But the blue yarn is wet dyed, so it doesn't discharge, while the others are dyed with reactive dyes and discharges. So you can change um, sort of tartan into stripes or something else mm -hmm. just by removing color from some of the yarns, mm -hmm. and you can test the yarns before you weave it, so you know what you're getting mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. before. Mm -hmm. And what what I learned from Joy is that I could take vat dyes, um, synthetic vat dyes, they're immersion dyes, and they would simultaneously remove a fiber reactive dye while it deposited another color in its place. So that completely transformed the way I started working. This is a red vat dye discharge. You know, the fabric started out in, in, in colors of blues and browns. And um, this all brought much, much more color to my work, but in a very controlled way. This one is working with both um, woven and clamped shibori resists. It was um, it was it was dyed first in the blue, and the final dye was the woven shibori resist with a vat dye discharge, which is the gold brown on top of it. You know, I began combining this vat dye discharge with printing to make fabrics of many layers of color that I could not have done otherwise. And then taking something, uh, you know, very structured as a plaid, as a stripe, and kind of shattering it apart with woven shibori and the vat dye discharge. The green was the was the vat dye. I use this in a series of, uh, you know, th this this logic in a series of landscape pieces that combine both fiber reactive dyes and vat dye. It, you know, to give it that next depth. The next thing was, it had to do with yarn and twist and shaping with that. It, you know, what I've learned is that I can, I can bring a question or a problem to Joy, and she can give me an insight that I wouldn't have otherwise. And these are two woven shibori fabrics of mine right here, the one on the left had this physical texture to it. It never went away. I watched it, I pressed it, I steamed it, you know, and these, it still had this texture to it. Whereas a different fabric, woven in exactly the same way, was flat and smooth. And I didn't understand why. It's I both I cotton. Yeah, they're both cotton. They're, they're, they're both cotton, and I didn't understand what the difference was in these two fabrics. So what did you do? Yeah, I took a magnifier and looked <laughs> at it and said, oh, there's a difference in the yarn twist mm -hmm. in those two material. And if you have an unstabilized yarn, it will release when you wet it. And it's known by finishers that if you make crepe fabrics, it's very, very important that you don't have any folds in the fabric because they are irremovable. 
when you have crept it in the water afterwards. So I said, okay, now you have folds in your fabric <laughs> and they are irremovable afterwards. <laughs> you cannot reverse it because all the re releases uh, happened on top of the folds. But where it's compressed, it cannot release the tensions in the yarns. So what happens is that the pleating is permanent. So if you use crepe yarn, you can get this result. So the next step was that next time I saw Catherine, he had, she had made a lot of samples <laughs> with, with crepe yarns. Yeah, y you know, yarn twist, I mean, even as a weaver, it, it only meant, oh, well, it goes one direction or the other. And I really didn't give it a lot of thought until we really dug in and started looking at what this did and what, how did you determine if a yarn had an overtwist to it. Even a slight overtwist was enough to shape those fabrics in some way and leave an irreversible texture. But we also learned that using, as Joyce said, a crepe yarn, a yarn that was way overtwisted and weaving with that, once it was gathered and then the twist was released while it was gathered very, uh, very, very tightly. Um, this, this slide right here is just the beginning of the gathering, but these, these pleats were compressed very, very tightly. And then it simply went into hot water. And when it went into hot water, the twist released, but just on the edges of the pleats, so that the fabric becomes pleated permanently. This can be what we've all seen silks that are pleated temporarily until they get wet, but this is pleated permanently because it's a structural pleat. There's no changing it. There's no reversing no chemicals. it. Yeah, there are no chemicals involved. Y you know, dye isn't even involved. This is another. And you can actually use any material as long as it's overtwisted mm -hmm. and it's uh, released in water or in heat. Um, shaping, shaping with polyester. I began to be interested in that. I, I mean, back, back. This is the, this is the day when Nuno started doing some s in very, very interesting um, fabrics that were shaped with polyester. And what I learned is that Joy knows a lot about this. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought about that at, at the one of the SDA conferences in, in Kansas City. And I'm telling about the bonds between the molecules in the fiber and how in synthetic fibers you can release them with heat. And if you bend a fiber, you stress some of these bonds. And when you release them while they are bent, and then they reform in a new position when you cool down. So you form it permanently as long as you don't heat it up to the same temperature. So that's it. And then <laughs> most of the synthetic fibers are drawn. That means they are extruded <laughs> first. <laughs> uh, so you have a very amorphous structure. In order to get a fiber, real fiber with, with fiber properties, you have to stretch to line up some of the molecules inside the fiber to get a combination of amorphous and crystalline structures because mm -hmm. else you don't have a fiber. And this is, um, you can make shrinking in polyester by heating up to that temperature where it was stretched so it would contract again. 
and you can bend and you can fix mm -hmm. the shape. Mm -hmm. So I was talking about that at the conference and uh, Catherine thought maybe she could use it. These, these are fabrics. Um, the one on the left is one that you did using a smocking pleater, yes. I think, on that a I polyester fabric, right? Time, yeah. And the other one was um, the one on the right uses a steam, a, a, a heat press to flatten out those. So what I realized is that I only needed to use a polyester in the direction in which my fabric was pleated because I'm, I'm, I'm doing weaving and shibori. And if, if I only use the polyester in one direction, it gives me a lot of freedom about dyeing and also a fabric that has a much, much better hand and a fabric that's permanently pleated. This is, and this uses dispersed dyes in addition to, you know, the cotton is what's dyeing. This is with fiber-reactive dyes and, and bat dyes and dispersed dyes. But it's only dyeing the cotton and not the polyester in the weft. But, you know, which was a perfect way to um, develop fabrics for clothing, you know, that, that had shape and fit and, you know, not really shaping, but it, they fit because of the way they, they molded to the body. Joy made um, synthetic fibers really interesting. Things that we, you know, these are fibers that we had all avoided for many, many years. And she started getting me thinking about synthetic fibers in a completely other way. And um, she taught us about burnout. And one of the biggest challenges about burnout is finding a commercial fabric that will actually burn out. You want to you talk for a minute about exactly what burnout is? Yeah, burnout is re removing one fiber from a construction uh, consisting of two fibers, two types of fibers. And if one is uh, tolerant to acid and the other not, you can remove one fiber by printing an acid on it. If it's, it's opposite, it's you have one fiber very sensitive to alkaline, you can print an alkalinity or alkaline solution on and remove one fiber and the other will stay. So, but you have to have a combination of two materials mm -hmm. or you get really holes, <laughs> which is fun also. <laughs> well, to a certain extent. <laughs> to a certain extent, <laughs> yes. But, but the problem is always to find, you can get coarse bond, you can get, for example, polyester bond with uh, cotton and you can get combination where they're woven together or kneaded together, and so on. I, so this is a commercial Devere velvet. I, you know, it's got a silk foundation, and the velvet is a rayon, so that will that will burn out. But if I'm weaving these fabrics, then I have complete control. And this is again using woven shibori as the the organization for the Devere, and this is just a plain weave woven with a coarse bond polyester yarn. So the outer covering of the cotton burns away, whereas the polyester in the core stays, and you get a fabric that's transparent. I can also control fabrics in warp and weft. There's a weft used as the, uh, the, the weft is the polyester and the warp just burns away completely. And I can combine that with woven resists. Um, this is another version of that, but the, there's a darning element in polyester that's been added to it, allowing the floats to be longer so that things tie together. 
And then I started getting hold of some really, really interesting yarns that came from Japan. This particular one was a copper and bamboo uh, combination. You know, and as a weaver, you, you, you get a cone of this yarn and you think, oh, this is really interesting. What can I do with it? You know, when you weave something with it, and so what? It's, it's bamboo and, and, and copper, and so what? Unless you can find a way to really and truly show off that yarn and all of the features about it. The pink color of this, this is not dyed, the pink comes from the copper that's twisted with the bamboo, and I burned out the bamboo fiber, leaving the, uh, leaving the copper threads in both the warp and the weft. And in this case, uh, an acid is printed on. Cellulosic fibers are sensitive to acids, so mm -hmm. you, it's a very simple process. Mm -hmm. And with wool burnout, you have to use a strong alkaline solution that you print on, and it will dissolve the wool mm -hmm. and wash it out. Mm -hmm. So this is a this is a commercial. This is a commercial no, knit. No, no, it's a sample. This no, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah mm -hmm. It's a knitted mm -hmm. fabric that one of my students in oh, Copenhagen okay. did, mm -hmm. and she did this burnout of the wool. So I, you know, I started burning out wool. I got hold of some wool and stainless steel fiber, which, y you know, I mean, so what? It's wool and stainless steel, but if I can burn out that wool and then just reveal the stainless steel, then I have something that's much, much more special. This, again, is wool and stainless steel, and there's a detail of that, those fine, fine, fine stainless steel threads that remain when all of the wool goes away, and it's a very strong fabric. So, uh, Joy brought me, you want, you want to tell about the yarn that you brought me? Yeah, I, <laughs> I got in Japan some, some stainless steel yarns that are very, very fine stainless steel, spun, so it's pliable like a textile. Really, steel is not a f real fiber, so it breaks, but it can be used as a textile. So I brought some and gave Kathleen the cone that I had because mm -hmm. I couldn't use it for anything except showing. <laughs> so we did some samples. Right. And right. we talked about how could you dye it because you can't dye stainless steel, but you can tarnish it with heat. <laughs> so that's what <laughs> Catherine is doing. <laughs> <laughs> I took a torch to it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I wanted to transform it, so I just, I just took a torch. And it did. It transformed it. And I, th you know, and I thought it was going to change the color, but it, it did a whole lot more than that. And, and, and then one summer, Joy and I were teaching at Penland, and um, we started working with a blacksmith there, and he started um, um, making some red-hot steel plates, and we would get fabrics and put steel plates down on the fabric, and that did the same thing. So this is some of Joy's um, um, loop braiding. It's loop braided in stainless steel Sta with, a, with a medieval technique. Mm -hmm. um, and we made some bracelets for the auction at Penland for, uh, out of the stainless steel, and we tarnished it with hot steel, right. uh, holding it over to, to take the... Uh, the higher parts uh, into blue and brown. Right, as you can right. See. They're 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 beautiful. They're they're beautiful. So so the the thing that surprised me is is that the the heat transformed the shape in much the same way that we were do getting with polyester, much the same way we were getting with over twisted yarns because because the f the the yarns themselves change at the surface, y you know where the where the pleats are, so they become a permanent shape in the cloth, 
And so this is a piece that I did using that. This is a very heavy shawl, you know, quite, quite heavy, but it's the size of a shawl, but it has the drape and all, but it's not the most comfortable thing to wear. <laughs> but it is a textile, it's very yeah, much a textile. And it's pleated. <laughs> yes, and it's, and it's pleated. So, so felting resist is pretty special because Joy and her colleagues really invented this. Yeah, it's, it's because uh, I had a student who, who read an English magazine and saw that some English students, uh, I think in, in St. Martin's in London, had done some felting resist. And he said, can we do this? I said, yes, I'll <laughs> see what I can do. And we looked up some commercial products, but they were polyurethane-based. And when we looked at the safety sheets, I said, no, we can't use this in school. We have so many young women here, and this is gene, um, changing the genes and uh, giving on to the next generation, so we don't want to have it here. But we did some samples and had some nice results, but I had to find another solution. And I found a very simple solution with things we had already in the workshop. And uh, I showed it the first time in 1994 at Penland. And Jean Cassisito liked it. Mm -hmm. She's been using it since. Mm -hmm. But uh, at the time, I hadn't tested it fully. Mm -hmm. So I just said, this is uh, just an experiment, but let's see. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and this is, this is the really valuable thing about working with Joy, too, is that she understands the safety aspects of all of this. And we don't do anything unless it's safe to do. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's just an important part of it. So, so by applying the felt resist, you know, parts of the fabric are covered and protected from felting while others... Um, others can just really pull in and get very tightly felted. So I began applying this to woven shibori. Um, sometimes I'd felt in the washing machine, sometimes I felt in a, in a, you know, uh, um, on a roll like this. But it was the paste that covered these, these yarns that were very, very loosely woven and protected them from felting until it was done. And then it was removed and the whole fabric becomes very soft and supple. Um, this is all felting resist, so you get these areas that are very dense and very transparent, and there's a really good, you know, detail of all of this. And um, the open areas had been covered with this paste, and it's just sodium alginate, sodium alginate and alum. That's all it really is. Very simple. Yeah, and um, then we're able to sometimes introduce a fiber-reactive dye to into the paste, so that we can introduce color. And you know, I was working in all of these techniques with Joy's coaching. You know, we'd see each other every couple of years and, you know, we'd, you know, exchange information and we'd get really excited. But all of this really entered into this first book that I did in 2005 on woven shibori. It wasn't just about a resist for dyeing. It wasn't just about weaving, but it was about a lot of these processes mostly, <coughs> for the most part, working with synthetic dyes and, and processes. So at some point, we began teaching together at, at Penland. And in, <coughs> in 2007, oh, thank you, um, we, taught, we taught weaving, we taught finishing, and we taught synthetic dyeing. We did the same in 2009. But in 2008, 
I met Michel Garcia in France for the first time. And I know you all know him. I know you all know him. And Michel changed my life. I mean, he changed the way I thought about everything. And, you know, I spent a few days with him in France. And then I came home and I just started, I mean, my head was spinning. You can't imagine that, folks. <coughs> it was just spinning. And I had a hint of what was possible, but nothing was very clear. And I went to the studio and did sample after sample and test after test and tried to really, really understand that. And then Charlotte invited me to come to India in 2011 where I met Michel again and listened to him. I mean, the reason I was there was to teach Woven Shibori there. But, you know, this was another inundation into natural dye. And I was trying very hard to go back to this. It was a time in my life that was right. I had taught for 30 years in a college in a textile program. And I had just retired, and I was moving my studio, my dye studio, back to home where I have a very shallow well, a septic system, and a little creek out back. And I said, hmm, I can't use those, that dyes anymore. I didn't want to use those uh, fiber react. I just didn't want to do it. But I, I had a lot to learn. But I started experimenting. I just started doing. Um, I was working with Indigo. I was working with Woad. I began working with Weld. I was applying woven shibori to my own fabrics. I was working with the Oriel Mill in North Carolina, having them weave fabrics for my woven shibori, which meant that I didn't have to weave everything. I could do more testing. I could just do more dyeing, more dyeing, and I just did dyeing. But the reality is, is I was so confused. I was so confused. Um, I, you know, I love Michel. I've learned so much from him, but he had confused me completely. And I'd, re I'd, and I'd read something in a book, and then I'd read something else in a book, and I didn't know how to make sense of it. And Joy and I were teaching in, at Penland, and I, I knew that she'd had some background in natural. Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about yeah. your background in natural dyes? Yeah, I, when I, I did my finishing work in Germany in, in 1970, <laughs> it's a long time ago, um, <laughs> I did analysis because I wanted to work with conservation. So I did analysis of natural dyes on fibers from the 16th, 17th century. So I developed methods for that uh, at the time. So I have been dyeing with natural dyes uh, for samples, for the analyzers and so on. And my great interest is technology history. So I al always reading old books about how they did in former times, in textile, in printing, in finishing, and so on. So uh, when Catherine asked me, I said, oh, yes, I know You something. didn't say yes at first. <laughs> you said, I said, okay, how about if we when we teach the next time, we teach with natural dyes, and she said, I like synthetic dyes. <laughs> I do, I do. But, but also because there's been so much uh, religious about uh, using natural dyes, you know, uh, as if all ways 
of using natural dyes is environmentally friendly. It, it isn't. I mean, many of the old recipes ask for very, very dangerous and poisonous and environmentally very dangerous things. So that's what was one of the reasons for me. And also I have seen groups of people gathering endangered plants for, for group dyeing of inferior materials. So I think, and I know the Faroe Islands and Iceland were, were invaded by people uh, collecting license that, uh, lichens that take hundreds of years of recovering. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that's what's one of my reasons for saying no, 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 no. But when she talked about the ways that Michelle was teaching, I said, okay, on that condition that we are not using anything environmentally mm -hmm. unfriendly, mm -hmm. I'm on. <laughs> <laughs> so we started teaching. You know, I mean, we started learning. I started learning. And, and to, I too. Okay, and and we started teaching together because things don't come out as I predict. Right. When she <laughs> she does all the work, and I say you can do so and so, and and she said no, it doesn't work, <laughs> and I have to go home and think again and find some some sources that will tell me what's happening. Right. Right. So so initially we we repeated what we had done before. We taught weaving with natural dyes, but then we began teaching only with natural dyes because we just decided there was so much to learn. I had so much to learn. I you, you know, I wanted to understand why I was doing certain things, why certain processes, why a procedure, one procedure might be better for another. So, you know, we taught dyeing for immersion, we taught dyeing for printing, because, you know, Joy brought all of her knowledge of printing to, to this. And I began to see my own weavings change and morph as I understood all of this much, much better. I mean, we, were, um, um, we weren't working with complex processes, but just learning how to use them in a much, much smarter way. Um, discharging of mordants and combining it with other dyes. You know, I revisited things like the landscapes and tried to capture the same essence that I had with the vat dye discharge, but now I was just using indigo and, um, and mordant discharge. Um, um, y you know, this is, this is more of the, the landscape piece here using a variety of natural dyes. And then I repeated a piece that I had done earlier on with synthetic dyes. It had taken me weeks to develop all the colors of that, but then I repeated it in one single dye, cochineal you know, with a variety of mordants. So it's another, working with natural dyes was another whole way of thinking. Every color was beautiful. Y you know, I didn't have to work so hard at mixing color. I just had to learn a whole lot more chemistry about it. Um, uh, you know, instead of applying different dyes, um, different colors to a different side of a textile. Now it was different mordants to give a similar result. Michelle taught me about using acid dyes in a one bath process. 
And that, um, that got me going down a route of doing cross-dyeing. And because I was weaving my fabrics, I could weave them in wool, I could weave them in cotton, I could, I, you know, when I combined these one-bath acid dyes with indigo, the indigo would attach to one fiber, the, the acid dye would attach to another fiber. When you add a resist, you have a whole other thing going on. This one is in wool, cotton, and silk, and each fiber takes the dye in a very, very different way. So all of this and the work that I did with Joy over the years, that resulted in the second edition of Woven Shibori. You know, the weaving was all the same. That didn't change, but every bit of synthetic dye and dye information and sample in the first book was replaced with natural dye in this. And I have to tell you, I would never have had the courage or the confidence to do this without Joy standing by me, you, you know, and, and saying, yeah, 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 you got it. You, 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 you got it. You don't need me anymore. <laughs> you, that's what you keep saying, I do. <laughs> but, but we continue to learn. We continue to learn and to study, and you know, um, we've we've gotten together with dyers just to share and just to work together and just to learn together. This was at a studio in Asheville that we we did this together. Um, this is near my house where we were collecting dung. You know, I mean, what is this whole process of dunging? And you know, is chalk the same as bran? Is the same as dung? And the only way to find out is to just go do it. So we did it. Um, a few years ago, I was going to Guatemala to work with a group of women down there. These women had been weavers, and there was no market for their weaving. Um, so there, there was this idea to teach them natural dyeing. Well, you can see how enthusiastic these women were. <laughs> and somebody else had been there the year before, and these are the really exciting colors they got. So they were a little skeptical. But I was going down there, and you know, up until then, I had been using particular mordanting processes for cotton that all included um, aluminum acetate. And I knew that would be difficult to access that or even make it down in Guatemala. And Joy said, oh, why don't you use alum and soda ash? And I looked at her like she was crazy. You know, that wouldn't work, that wouldn't this, work. This is an old recipe, <laughs> so uh, I had it from a book from 1909. So I, <laughs> I, Wrote it out and, and translated the 500 tons to to a little less for for Catherine, in an industrial book, of course. And um, so I, uh, that's a time when natural dyes were used parallel with synthetic uh -huh. dyes. And it's cheap and it's easy and it works and it worked down there. Yeah. So the women were happy. <laughs> the women were. I was really happy. Yeah. You know, it 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 worked, and it was a very. It's the least expensive mordant that you could use on cotton, and I. You know, these women have been doing this project with all with cotton yarns. 
um, um, dyeing them up, packaging them up, and putting these kits together to weave these towels, y you know. And in fact, they're, they're still doing it, you know. There was an emergency because their dye supplier, you know, went out of business, so I sent them to Charlotte, you know, to, to, get, to get something this time. So, so uh, y you know, would I have ever found that or tried that without working with Joy? No, no, never. Um, all right, you want to talk about this? <laughs> yeah, I said that, you know, uh, when you use natural dyes, you have to think about fastnesses, and especially light fastness. And I had told Catherine some time before that you could test it easily by using a blue uh, wool scale uh, that's uh, available, you can buy it, and it's an international scale. Uh, testing the light fastness. The blue scale acts as a sort of uh, accumulative uh, light measurement, telling how much light comes on. So you can scale the light fastness in the international one to eight by counting which one your sample is uh, looking most alike. So Catherine started doing that, a little belated, but uh, she <laughs> did. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> yeah, she saw the idea that it's not unimportant which dye you're using, especially if you're selling your work, because <laughs> it gives a very bad name to all dyes uh, in natural dyes if you sell something that's not good enough. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And there's been some very bad examples of that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, so I, I mean, this helped me to narrow down my palette. I had gotten to the point where I'd walk into the studio and you know, I'd look at 30 jars of dye on the, on the shelf and I, was, I didn't even know what to do I, you know, until I did light fastness tests on everything and then it all came down to like eight dyes and that's it. That's, yeah. that's, that, that's it and life got a whole lot easier. So at any given time, this is what the window of my studio <laughs> looks like. Y you know, because, because it's not just the dye itself. Sometimes it's the mordanting process, sometimes it's the application, sometimes and it's the fiber, some, I, you know, it's, it's, it's all, and this is. And this the strength. Right, the, the strength of the color. So this is where, you know, we just keep digging in deeper and find out what we don't know and have to go out there and test in order to be confident about saying something and understanding why we're doing something rather than just doing it because some book told you to do it. Um, you know, uh, when we were in North Carolina studying with some other folks, um, we, we, we started doing some, some tests with tannins and comparing tannins and, um, and, you know, all of these things are enlightening, you know, they've been really enlightening to me to help me understand the process and then we started taking that a little bit further, these are all on cotton and um, the different tannins had different effects with the dyes and the, 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 the amount of mordant that was able to attach to the fiber. Um, we started comparing different mordants, uh, you know, the alum soda ash, the aluminum acetate, and all kinds of other things. You know, why would you choose to do one over the other? And, you know, and, and so, we're, we're discovering things, we're learning why, and this seemed valuable. This seemed really valuable. Um, one of the, 
one of the questions that we always got from students is about printing and printing directly with dyes. So um, you, you want to talk about this, about the direct printing with the dye? Yeah, it's, it's like this, that the, um, the connection between the mordant and the dye doesn't happen if it's acid. It has to be neutral or slightly alkaline. And if you put the mordant and the dye together in the print paste, they would normally connect immediately into a lake, and you can't print with it. But if you have acid present, they can't do it. So you can print, and let the acid evaporate, so you have to use acetic acid, which will uh, evaporate <laughs> while drying, and mm -hmm. then you steam it, and the lake is formed in the fiber. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, so the, the resources that Joy has been able to use are these old printing manuals from the early part of the 20th century, things that I, they never would have made any sense to me. I now and own I collect books. Things. She collects them and she reads them and she understands them and now I own these books. But a lot of the recipes and the processes that we're using really do come from these old manuals. Yes. You want to talk about that period of time in... in yeah, you, you know, in, in the transition between the uh, synthetic dyes, uh, they, they were invented in the 1850s, and for a long time, the natural dyes were used parallel to synthetic dyes until about 1930. So the literature about that time contains both synthetic dyes and natural dyes, and a lot of, but the essential thing is that at that time they knew a more, much more chemistry, so they know what they are doing, and they have tested different mordants and tested different methods and optimized the processes, so you don't waste either dye or mordant or anything. So I thought it was a good source for mm -hmm. finding out what is the best thing to do. So I'm sitting there with one of the books <laughs> with samples. <laughs> yeah, these books actually have all actual samples in them. It's, it's, it's quite remarkable. And, and, and from all of this, we have developed pretty nice processes of printing with indigo. And, um, and it literally makes a vat right in the textile, which is also alkaline enough to discharge a mordant dye that has been put on the textile beforehand. It's an old English recipe that I picked up and modified a little bit for Catherine. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you know, the, once the, the, the dye is printed on the textile, it's steamed, and it's, it, you know, you get it out of the steamer and you think it smells like burnt sugar, and it and looks it all, is. it is burnt <laughs> sugar. And it's all scarred and burned and, y you know, black, and then you start um, um, oxidizing it and cleaning it, and you get, you get this. This is a light blue indigo print on a white cloth and on a matter dye cloth. And it's the alkalinity of that vat that discharges the mordant and displaces it. So then we started thinking, well, here's you a... You did. I, yeah, okay, all right. Um, here's a print on just a plain white mordanted cloth. And then we realized that we could dye it afterwards because the mordant goes away just where the indigo print is and then that little halo right around it. So 
it's kind of like being back in the vat dye discharge, you know, yeah, but but with gorgeous. natural, but with natural dyes, completely, completely natural dyes. And um, the alkalinity, you know, I I taught a class of, oh, a few months ago, and I I was teaching indigo printing like this, and I had students that wanted to have a blue background in printing on top of it, and I said, okay, you know, just let's do it. And what we learned is that the alkaline indigo print was so alkaline it actually removed the indigo that it was already on the cloth. So the way to get it was to print on the white cloth and then dye the background, like the one in the center. With y you know, but the one on the right is really beautiful. It's just very, very different. You know, so sequence matters a lot in this as well. Sequence matters a whole lot. This is working with indigo and indigo resists and, um, and, and mordants, mordants in the resist, building up color in that way. So the printing is getting more complex. Indigo discharge, you want to talk about indigo discharge? Yeah, this yeah. is an old technique also uh, using oxidation to remove indigo and with potassium permanganate you can oxidize the indigo and remove it and it leaves a brown color and that you can remove with an acid. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I sh just uh, accidentally told Catherine that once, and she said, oh, let us try that. And she <laughs> ordered it immediately and tried it, and was so happy about it. Yeah, yeah, it's, 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 it's pretty interesting. So here, the, the sample on the left is just an indigo discharge. The, the one in the center is a discharge that has been developed or with sugar, y you know, so that it becomes a permanent brown. And the one on the right uses a tannin in combination with the sugar so that you get a much, much darker brown. And then we've been doing indigo discharge, um, working with a, um, with a soy paste at used as a resist. So on the left, you've got a traditional paste resist for an indigo dye. And um, in the other pieces, you're using the paste to resist the discharge. You know, because you can't print with this particular paste. It doesn't, it doesn't work um, for a lot of different reasons. So yep. uh, the, the permanganate, you can't print that because mm -hmm. if you mix it with the thickener for printing, mm -hmm. uh, it reacts with the thickener mm -hmm. immediately and mm -hmm. is destroyed mm -hmm. and doesn't work on the textile. So just last week, <laughs> you know, just last week we did these samples. Um, com yeah, c combining combining the blue and the brown in the same textile and and, and learning um, what works in and what doesn't work in 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 the sequencing of all of this. So so the th the thing is we're we're continuing to learn, we're continuing to discover. And um, a, a number of months back, we knew that we were privileged to be able to work together and to just bring some sense to all of this a little bit. So we proposed doing a book together on natural dye. Um, I, I, we tried to write the book that I really wanted when, when I 
started back with natural dyes that would explain to me why things were happening and why I might make one choice over another. And maybe there were four good choices, but I just, there wasn't anybody to tell me that. So this has been our project this, this, these last couple of years, and this is due out later this fall. Um, is it going to be perfect? Probably not. Is it going to answer every question? No, because all of this is going to continue to be a work in process, as we all are, I think. We're just, we're, we're, we're all a work in process. Oh, um, so thank you. <laughs> thank you. Hi, thank you for the very inspiring talk. It was very interesting. Um, I have one question. Um, you were continually talking about you both exchanging to all the time and how much it was worth it for you or valuable. And I wonder, um, could you may say a few words on what ways this communication happened? So was it emails? Was it like the most um, enlightening things happened when you met up, or was it like you did it from distance? Was it like when you met actually close up each other and you were like saving up your questions to then discuss? So no. that would interest me very much. It's actually a combination of those because we met mainly in the beginning, we didn't have any formal collaboration. We only met at Penland, and sometimes when I was teaching there, Catherine lives very near, she comes up, she's part of the board at Penland. So she came up and she just showed me things, what she had been doing, and I put in a few words over the lunch, or something like that. And next time I came, two years later, she showed me something new. But later we started com communicating per email and uh, exchanging and asking. And in the last year, while making the book, we have been corresponding uh, very much by email. <laughs> I really think that the personal connection initially was really, really important because that's where the trust gets built. That's where you really begin to understand each other, you know, and have a sense of what each other has to offer and to bring to something like that. And then, you know, the way the emails go back and forth is I will do something and I usually have a question. But joy always responds. You, you know, it really takes going back and forth, and I never felt like I was tossing my questions out to an abyss. Um, but I had to be sure that they were well thought out technical questions, and I had done all my homework. It, yeah, I, 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 mean, I mean, really, because I couldn't, it, it made no sense to just ask a very general question. I had to have worked at it. And, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm very bad at letter writing, but technical, Letters I write with fun, yes. so uh, it's okay to get a question and I'll answer. <laughs> it sounds like there's a lot of acid and alkali solutions used. How friendly is this for the environment? Oh, as long as you neutralize before you throw it out, uh, you get salt and water if you neutralize. So it's it's not dangerous. We use very simple things as acetic acid and citric acid and alkalines as uh, lye and uh, potash and soda ash. And you can all neutralize those into very harmless components. So it's no problem. See, but that's, that's the good stuff to know. Y you know, I mean, that's 
Would I be confident in all of that if I didn't have someone like her to tell me, no, I wouldn't? I, 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 I'm, that's just the truth of it. Um, I noticed on one of your slides you were using a tin mordant. What are you using for tin that's safe? Because that's something I haven't come across. And what are you using for iron as mordant, for that matter? Yeah, we use uh, iron uh, acetate or iron sulfate, and only in very small amounts. Because the, the iron as such is not harm, harmful or anything. And tin is, uh, is not harmful as such. As a metal, it's, it's used in food, cooking utensils as the inner parts of copper pots and so on. So it's all with tin, and you use tin plates and tin tools and so on. So tin is not harmful as such. Y you know, I avoided it because I thought, oh, well, they, you know, this is a bad thing. And um, until, until we sat down and talked about it some, and I think one of the things against tin is that it's so very, very expensive. And it only does very, very special things with a couple of dyes. So we end up using very small amounts of it just in very, very certain circumstances. So it's not... It, it, it's not a, a general one. You, you won't use tin as a general mordant at all. It's just to get certain hues with certain dyes. And it was not introduced into natural dyeing until the late uh, 17th century. We don't use copper and chromium because it's harmful. So if you use copper sulfates and copper uh, compounds and you release uh, some of the leftovers into nature, this is very harmful. So you shouldn't do that. It is a fungicide and um, it's harmful to the cleaning plants and it's harmful to the environment. So I don't recommend using copper. But uh, it's known that copper enhances the light fastness of most dyes. So one of the ways you can put a little bit of copper in is, is to put copper coins into the bath or something like that. So much indoor plumbing has copper pipes, you know, in the bathroom and sinks and so oh, forth. And is there not a way to precipitate out the... It does. In if you have acid water, so in all the soft water uh, areas, you have problems with copper, and also with the welding of, of different tubes in, in the piping in the house. So in, in those countries such as Sweden and Norway, for example, that the countries I know <laughs> with soft water, uh, they, they are always advised to let the water run for some time before using it, because if it stands a longer time in the pipes, it's the same with iron. Actually, you get iron in your water if the water has been is soft and stands in the in the pipes for some time. So you have to let it run for some time also to get fresh water in. But of course, it's it's damaging. If you have hard water, you always have a calcium deposit inside the tubes. So in Denmark, where we have very hard water, very very hard, um, the tubes get the hole in the tube gets smaller and smaller, and in Sweden it gets larger and larger, and in the end, uh, they have a hole. Thank you both so much. Fantastic. You have been listening to a Mewa podcast. The lecture between science and art 
was recorded live Tuesday, September 11, 2018, as part of the Maywa School of Textiles lecture series held in Vancouver, Canada. The lecture is introduced by Tim McLaughlin and features Catherine Ellis and Joy Boutra. The podcast you have just heard consists of excerpts from the lecture and was first posted in 2019. Maywa Podcast can be found on the Maywa School of Textiles website at schooloftextiles.com. That's schooloftextiles, all one word, dot com. For more information about Maywa and all that we do, please visit our website at maywa.com. That's M-A-I-W-A dot com. I'm Liberty Erickson, and thank you for listening.